Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August the 8th, 2018. We're up to episode 2,267 of the Survival Podcast, and I'm pretty excited about this one. Uh, I have a special guest today that I, uh, I first came across through uh, Diego Footer on the Permaculture Voices podcast. We also had him do a workshop for Perma Ethos while I was part of that. And his name is Akiva Silver, and he's here to talk to us about tree crops. Akiva has a background in wilderness survival and nature awareness. He holds a deep appreciation for wildlife and especially trees. Akiva runs a farm called Twisted Tree Farm, which is 20 acres of diverse orchards and nursery. The nursery provides Akiva and his family of five with their full income at this point. He believes in the trees that he raises so much that he sees them as a path forward for humanity and all of the ecosystems around us. Akiva uh, says that tree crops are an incredible path forward on multiple levels, and if we understand how... We can partner with the plant world. We can stabilize and build soils, increase wildlife populations, feed ourselves, manage the carbon cycle, and provide ourselves with abundant income. He's here to talk to us about all of that and more, and we'll have him on in just a moment. Before we uh, get uh, Kiva on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, is ButcherBox.com. Guys, I have uh, banners on the website for all the sponsors. But in, in general, I don't really think it matters. You can just go to their website or you can come to the site and use their banner. With Butcher, ButcherBox, if you are not uh, yet a customer, you want to go use the banner. It'll direct you back to the MSB if you're an MSB member. If you're not, though, even if you just want to sign up for ButcherBox without being an MSB member, there is a special deal on the first order. You Make sure you get that. ButcherBox is awesome. It's like having your own personal shopper go out and find the best grass-fed beef, pastured poultry, pastured pork you can get. It's really amazing stuff. It, it, it's some of my favorite food to eat now that I am a, a ButcherBox customer myself with stuff shipped to my house. In fact, right before I turned on the recorder today and started doing today's show, I got a little ding-ding on my iPhone, ran out to the uh, front gate and picked up a box that is from ButcherBox.com. Know all my great stuff's in there. Didn't even bother to open it yet. They package it wonderfully. I think sometimes people might be afraid to order meat through the mail, you know. But the way they package it, they have these uh, recyclable peanuts that that insulate the box, and so they'll just dissolve down to nothing in water, so you can get rid of them. You got a cardboard box, and that's about it. And uh, dry ice packed in there, and it holds beautifully. Um, I'll probably go unpack it after I get done with the episode today and get it uploaded for you guys, get everything into the freezer, pick out what we're going to cook tomorrow maybe. But uh, we don't really have to worry about it at all. It, it could sit overnight and still be okay. We've done that before. So if you've been thinking about giving ButcherBox a try, but you're just a little bit concerned about getting beat in the mail, don't let it get in your way. Give them a call today or get on their, get on their website today and, and get signed up and start getting some of the best meat you can ever find shipped to your home once a month or once every other month. If frequency you prefer, and if you're like, I don't know if I'm going to like this, it's a subscription, but it's a subscription you can cancel any time. 
So, you know, if you get it for a couple months and you decide it's not for you, you can cancel. It's not like there's any long-term obligations. Give them a shot. I think they'll win your business for a long time to come. Next up today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. you got all this great meat coming to your house, man. you got to know what to do with it. So check out HarvestEating.com for Chef Keith's courses, his podcast, his YouTube channel, his seasonings, and all his other good stuff. Chef Keith is a longtime supporter of TSP, been with us about eight years, been on the air with us many times, serves on the expert council. So when you're thinking, hey, I need to know how to cook this thing, or I wonder if there's any great ideas for this, always check with Chef Keith first. He's an incredible resource over at HarvestEating.com. And again, he's got some great educational products too, like the Paleo Beef Course, I think is something that many of you guys would be really interested in at HarvestEating.com. All right, before I bring Akiva on, let's uh, take a look at this day in history. We're going to go back to 1974, August the 8th, which is today. August the 8th, 1974, President Richard Nixon resigns. In an evening televised address, President Richard M. Nixon announces his intention to become the first president in American history to resign. With impeachment proceedings underway against him for his involvement in the Watergate affair, Nixon was finally bowing to pressure from the public and Congress to leave the White House. Quote, by taking this action, he said in a solemn address in the Oval Office, quote, I hope that I will have hastened the start of a process of healing which is so desperately needed in America, end quote. So, of course, we all know that Nixon came down from the Watergate scandal, and uh, there just really isn't a bigger thing that happened on this day in history uh, to point to. It is ironic, I think, that in 1968, on August the 8th, uh, Nixon and Agnew received the Republican Party nomination, so he actually resigned on the same day that he had been nominated uh, a few years earlier. A few other things went on this year. Um, Lee, General Lee, offered his resignation in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, in 1945, President Truman signed the United Nations Charter. Uh, and uh, in 1986, Spike Lee's first feature, She's Gotta Have It, premiered. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that happened, but nothing bigger, I think, than the only president of the United States, so far anyway, to resign the office under threat of impeachment. Um, with that, let's go ahead and uh, let you know about something really cool that's going on. Uh, this Saturday, many of you know, I am having a 10-year anniversary party at a place called Mesomaya in downtown Fort Worth. How do you come? If you don't know the answer to that, really, then you don't get to, because we had people register for this over a month ago, and it all filled up. Uh, but I also thought, like, you know, we're doing a 10-year party. We should do something for 10 years. How about an MSB sale? So Member Support Brigade is a great deal. It can save you a bunch of money on stuff that you're probably going to buy anyway over the years and put the money that you spend on MSB right back in your pocket and be profitable. Uh, I put out a sale today. I have a post on it with a bunch of good stuff about MSB. You can check that out. There's a link in the show notes. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and uh, scroll down. But if you know you're ready to join, the discount code is 10 years, one zero years. All is one word but no space in it. And if you, if you do T-E-N years, it'll work too. I set it up so it'll work either one. Uh, again, discount code is 10 years, no space in it. I know the codes are working because some folks have already signed up for the sale. You get a year of MSB for 35 bucks, which is a deal. I mean, that's, that's a deal. You're talking about 12 cents an episode now to support the show plus getting your money back and all the other great stuff that goes along with being an MSB member. 
But on, on top of it, I'm doing this sale in the way where if you become a member now during this, this special price of $35 bucks instead of $50, That rate will lock in for life. So it's not like $35 the first year, $50 each additional year. $35 a year locks in for life as long as you stay a member. If, you are a, if you've never joined and you're not a member yet, you can use this to sign up. If you had an account that expired, you can log into your account, click on the link to renew, and use this discount uh, to renew at a, at a reduced rate as well. Um, if you are an existing member and you would like, I, I really can't, Do that. I'm not Verizon where I'm like, offer pertains to new customers only. It's the way the software works and the way recurrent payments work with something like PayPal or Stripe. If I try to let you renew early, all it does is create a big mess and double billing and stuff like that. Uh, that said, if you wanted to, you could renew early by doing it uh, with the mail-in form. If you really wanted to get the discount, we just because you'll tell us you're an existing uh, member, we'll cancel your auto-renew, and, and you can use it that way. And, of course, anybody that wants to can renew through the mail-in form. That's all in the uh, post where you can find that. Uh, and if you want to uh, buy this uh, through uh, snail mail, I guess is the way to put it, uh, we do also take silver and some other things. And I will do cryptocurrency. You just need to email me with TSPC in the subject line. Tell me you want to pay in cryptocurrency, and we'll work that out uh, on the side, I guess, so to say. Uh, anyway, that kind of wraps things up. Just want to let you know about that. It's a great deal, guys. $35 bucks for MSB is stupid cheap. If you spend you know, an hour to two hours a day with me uh, learning about all the stuff we talk about here, it, you know, it really isn't a big leap to say that's worth you know, $0.20. Cents let alone 12 cents. So uh, consider joining if you're not yet a member. Consider coming back if you were a member and you, you, you expired or got canceled or whatever. And, and guys, I want to tell you, when you go to sign up now, you have two choices. One's PayPal and one is Stripe. I really suggest Stripe. I left PayPal there because some of you just like it. I don't have anything personally against PayPal, but I do have something against them from a business standpoint. I have lost so many members due to failure to renew uh, by their side screwing up, and they have been no help to me whatsoever. Uh, they've, it's ensured me that there's nothing wrong. And this is, you know, customers that are contacting me saying they're, they can't renew, they can't renew. They called in. PayPal can't help them. They tell me nothing's wrong. PayPal tells them to use a different method of payment. Fine, we'll use a different method of payment. I mean, I give those jerks thousands of dollars every year in fees. So uh, when you're signing up or renewing, Uh, it'll default to Stripe as long as you're going to use a regular credit card. No reason not to use it. It works the same way. Uh, so do consider uh, signing up. It's a good time to do it. $35 bucks a year. Discount code is 10 years. And uh, here's 10, 10 more years, I hope, of TSP uh, coming soon. So anyway, with that, let's go ahead and bring Akiva on. Uh, again, Akiva has uh, got a background in wilderness survival and nature awareness. He's here to talk to us about tree crops as a path forward on multiple levels. And uh, with that, hey, Akiva, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here. You know, when your uh, guest application came in, I, I was happy to see it. I, I remembered having first listened to you talk about this subject on the Permaculture Voices podcast. We, of course, had you uh, do a presentation when I was part of Perma Ethos, so I'm, I'm very familiar with you. And I love the subject of tree crops, I really do, and, and how they can impact your life and entrepreneurship, which we're here to talk to you about today as well. That said, many people who listen to the show probably have never heard of you. They don't know who you are. Before we get into the main subject, could you just kind of give people like the, the, the few-minute elevator speech on who you are? Like take us back to high school and what, what path leads you to the point where you're 
you know, growing trees in a small nursery in your backyard? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in just a regular suburban neighborhood outside of Rochester and a uh, pretty uh, mainstream upbringing. And then, uh, you know, I went to college, but I just I, I couldn't stand it, to be honest. And I <laughs> sort of freaked out, got really depressed, was on a lot of drugs. And I just escaped that. I joined the Army and then I uh, got out. I spent a few years in the military. And uh, when I got out, I just started traveling. And when I was traveling, I came across uh this guy uh tom brown jr who teaches wilderness survival and uh the whole thing it's not like wilderness survival like you bring this gear or that gear no it's like wilderness survival like you go naked into the wilderness and become mm-hmm. one with nature and the, the way he told these stories about his experiences was just blowing my mind and uh so i went to his school and i took some of his courses and then um from there it just snowballed and i became totally obsessed with nature and connecting with nature as deeply as possible i I would just go in the woods as much as i could all the time i I pretty much got rid of money and i just lived out of a backpack and uh and then uh on one camping trip i was i had i was with a friend and uh we were in these uh, this giant forest in pennsylvania and we were planning to stay there for a month and just you know just you know, full survival mode and just gather all their own food, build our shelters and everything. And I had just come from Rochester where I'd been staying for a while. And when I was in Rochester, I was doing what's called a sit spot. So I was doing sit spots in Rochester where I would just become highly attuned to all the, all the animals and birds around me. And I, I started to have a very keen awareness that there was a lot of creatures that lived in this, in these suburbs, right? And then, uh, but I just, I just hated the suburbs. You know, I hated like the houses, all the wires, all the cars and the roads. And I just felt like nature was true and everything else was fake. And so I just kind of, with my friend Mark, we went into the wilderness in Pennsylvania and we were just going to live in this full survival mode. I mean, we were wearing buckskin and all this. We, we were thinking this is, you know, this is the truth. And we got to this forest. We had to canoe in and we hiked back into the hills and we're camped there and and after a couple of days, you know, I was still doing my sit spots. And after a couple of days, I just became aware of how incredibly silent the forest there was. And the more I looked, the more I realized I'm in this forest that is hundreds of acres of red maple. And uh, the red maples were about 40 years old. And what had happened was somebody had logged these hills a long time ago. And what reseeded in was red maple. And they totally dominated. And so here I was in this wilderness area. Uh, away from the, you know, the impurities of civilization, but there was almost no wildlife. There was a hundred times more wildlife in Rochester in, in the middle of the suburbs. And I started to realize, you know, like the impacts of people on nature doesn't have to be negative. It can be positive or negative. And, and then, and then from then I just started thinking of like ways to impact nature. Cause I was always of the mindset of leave no trace camping and make as little impact as possible. And from then, I just I, it started a total shift, and I started to think about ways that I actually could become part of nature and and to influence it in in better ways to increase wildlife populations. Um, and so, I kind of took those concepts of what I saw in Rochester of the broken broken edges. You know, you see forests, fields mixed with shrubs, bulldozed areas, all these broken edges. And uh, and if you if you look at it closely, 
you can take those broken edges and there will be great wildlife habitat there no matter what you do. But if you were to go in there and add certain species, then it can just skyrocket and the sky's the limit and you can have just very high populations of, of birds and, and animals. And so I got super excited about that and I started uh, getting into tree planting and then, uh, and then once I started getting into tree planting, I started getting really into certain trees and, and growing my own foods and, realizing that certain foods can make just a tremendous impact on agriculture and and that's like a, a huge part of our land base you know the american lawn is one part that i'd like to work on and then agriculture is a whole other part and uh so anyways that so that's how i got into tree crops and planting trees cool man so can you talk to us about the concept itself of tree crops um i think that's a, it's sure. a fascinating subject and I, i know it goes back a lot further than most people probably think it does Right. I mean, tree crops have been used by many different civilizations over time. The Amazon was one of the earliest, most uh, significant civilizations to use them. But it's basically, uh, we think of crops, we think of corn, wheat, uh, just, you know, annual crops that require tillage. And tree crops is where a staple food is grown on a tree. So it's not just like, oh, I'm growing some uh, pears so I can eat pears, but it's actually like a crop, like something that is a staple product in your diet. And, uh, and by, by using tree crops, the, the benefits are just astronomical because it's not only like great for wildlife and the soil, but it, it, but you're working with it, an ecosystem. And so when you work with a field that you plow every year, the ecosystem is obliterated. Whatever wildlife populations are living in that field goes back to zero every year. Uh, so it never really builds into anything of significance. Just the animals can live on the edges of it, but nothing can really live in that. And so tree crops allows for for biodiversity to exist right in in the system. Um, but there's lots of reasons people could get into tree crops besides wildlife. So what are Does that some, make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. So, so what are some of your uh, favorite specific trees to work with? Uh, the chestnut has totally captured me. I uh, became interested in chestnuts. Like when I was a kid, I wasn't even into trees, but uh, we would always get them every fall, and I just loved them. And then, uh, and then my aunt has some big trees on her property, and I just thought they were so amazing. Uh, but then, uh, the more I looked at chestnuts, the more I realized this is it. This is like, you know, the Bible talks about uh, manna falling from heaven, basically like food falling from the sky, and that's what I think of the chestnut. They're just like they just fall out of the sky. They dump thousands of pounds of nuts, and The nuts themselves are not just like a snack. They certainly can be, but they're actually been used in many cultures as a grain, and they're very easily dried and ground into flour and have the same nutritional equivalent as, say, brown rice. So it's just like just this staple crop falling out of the sky is what uh, so excites me about chestnuts. They, they can live for thousands of years, and uh, they're just incredibly resilient beings. Can we talk a little more about chestnuts, specifically, like, what type of chestnuts you're growing? Are you doing, like, a Chinese-American hybrid? And, and maybe, for those that maybe aren't completely familiar, I'm sure you are, uh, a little bit about how we had chestnuts everywhere in this country before the great blight and the idiocy of let's cut them all down to save them. Right. So the chestnuts are a genus, Castanea, and they're really similar to um, oaks or beech trees. 
And just like oaks, there's many different species of chestnut around the world. And um, they're pretty much all very long-lived trees. There's a few exceptions that are just uh, smaller shrubs, but most of them are really big trees that live for centuries or millennia. There's one, the oldest chestnut is in Sicily, and it's around 4,000 years old at the base of this uh, volcanic mountain. Um, but anyways, the, in America, the species, there's a few different species that are from America. Uh, there's Castanea dentata, which is the American chestnut. And this was the tree that was, this is just the supreme tree of the eastern forest. Um, these trees, when people first got here, when white people first got here, these trees were 200 feet tall and 13 feet in diameter in the eastern forest in uh, Appalachia. So if you imagine a tree that's 13 feet in diameter, that'd be like if you stood in the center of a tree and stretched your arms out from fingertip to fingertip. If you reach the bark on both sides, that would be a tree that's six feet in diameter. These are monstrous giants, right? And uh, the wood they produced, is, it was very straight-grained, very easy to work. It was about as easy to work as white pine and just as stable. Uh, but at the same time, it was totally rot-resistant. It had the same rot-resistance as black locust, if not better, um, and the tree was dominant. It it grew just as abundantly as maples or oaks do today. In fact, about 25% of the trees in Appalachia from Maine to Georgia were, were American chestnut. And in a lot of areas, it was actually more like 50% of the trees were American chestnut. And it wasn't just as the wood was incredible, but the, the nuts themselves were huge food for wildlife and for people. So every fall, people would go out in the woods, they would gather chestnuts, and they would sell them, and they had train cars, train cars filled with chestnuts that would go to Baltimore, New York, D.C., Boston, and uh, they would people would sell millions of pounds of chestnuts every year. So, like today, when people think, "Oh, I, you know, I want a little, a little Christmas bonus money," you know, they'll they might ask their boss, or they might get a little tax refund. But back then, it was, "Well, go get some chestnuts in the woods and sell them to the at the train station." And so it became like a real, uh, a real way for people to make a little extra money. People would also bring their animals into the woods and, and fatten them up. And then if you were to be in one of those eastern cities, there would be, always be chestnuts roasting on the street. This was like part of our culture. This was not just a little part of our culture. This was just as much of our culture as apples are today. So like today kids go, they go to the cider barns, they go for hay rides, they have the cider and donuts. They have apple pies, apple sauce. We know the apple, right? We, we totally know the apple. But what if, what if one day you were in your garden and you look out and, you know, apple tree is dying and then you talk to a friend and his apple tree is dying and, and then you hear on the news all the apple orchards are being wiped out, all the apple trees are dying, what's going on here? And then uh, within, a, you know, 10 years, there's pretty much no apple trees left in the country. Well, after more time went on you would try to tell young people about the apple you'd be like you know they're they were so amazing like the the way you would bite into them that crispness the smell of cider it, you would be trying to explain it and kids would be shaking their head yeah yeah that's cool apple trees yeah i never seen one but they sound great that's basically what happened with the american chestnut this tree just disappeared from the landscape chestnut blight is a fungus that was accidentally introduced from asia and it wiped out four billion trees in uh about 25 years and it totally changed, totally changed the whole ecosystem of the East Coast, and it totally changed uh, it changed the culture. We were lost something, and uh, so, but a lot of things happen when that happens. A lot of people started working to to restore the chestnut or find ways to 
used chestnuts to bring them back into our country. And so what happened was this guy, Arthur Graves, he was a young man when chestnut blight hit, and he watched all these forests turn into skeletons, and he just went on a mission. And he planted something like, I think he planted like 20,000 chestnut trees, and, and he got seeds from all over the world, from all the different species of chestnut. There's Japanese chestnut, there's several species from China, there's species from Europe, and he got all these different species together, and he started planting them out, and then hybridizing them, crossing them, and then crossing the crosses, and he just made his whole philosophy, he was not a genetic, uh, he didn't study genetics, but he just felt like if we can get as much mixed together, all the different species, and we can find something that works here. And he left behind thousands of chestnut trees. They're still alive today. And uh, these are primarily the ones that work the best are these Japanese, Chinese, American crosses. And uh, so my neighbor, he's a few miles away, he started planting those Japanese, Chinese, American crosses from Arthur Graves' work uh, 40 years ago. And I go there every year and I collect uh, a few hundred pounds of chestnuts from his planting, and that's what I use for the seed for our orchards. Um, so that's kind of the lineage of where our chestnuts come from. And they've been proven to be very blight resistant and uh, very productive with nice big nuts. And, you know, the guy who planted that planting, my neighbor, he's, he's been working with them actively for 40 years, thinning, culling, and adding new trees all the time. So it's, it's really uh, amazing gift that I live right there. Do you ever see the day where not only we're cultivating these crops, uh, tree crops like a chestnut, in orchard and homestead and farmstead environments, but that these trees actually can take a place back in natural ecosystems? Uh, because yeah, that's part of what, yeah, like think... what you described is so, it's so beyond, you know, Joe has an orchard. The, the, I don't think people right. even could get in their head the abundance there was when the woodlands of America were full of chestnuts. Where I've seen yeah. old pictures where farmers are filling up carts for their livestock that they're not taking, the ones that are keeping back at home, like storing up extra for the winter, and the guy's sitting there with a number 10 coal shovel filling a cart. And if you've never right. seen a number 10 coal shovel, that's hard to get your head around, that you could be shoveling. It's like a, it's like a snow shovel, basically, of, of chestnuts into a cart. So do you ever see, like, can we ever get back to that? Well, it, I mean, that's my hope, is that chestnuts will start to repopulate. And I see uh, seedlings popping up at my neighbor's farm. Like, they pop up in the hedgerows all over the place. Uh, I know, like, it'll take a lot of time for it to actually grow into that, but if people get in the game and start using their hands, then it won't take that much time. So let's say 1%. Or 0.1 percent of the east of people on the east coast decide to plant like 50 trees. It, that would be a lot of freaking trees that got out into the world, and then they would populate themselves. But but there's actually something when you were saying that about all that abundance and shoveling with the shovel. I just want to mention that that abundance exists today. There there's probably 20 million pounds of black walnuts that fell on the ground in my county alone, and it just like rotted by the side of the road. Sure. That, that, there's mil millions of pounds of acorns, and people just aren't picking them up. They're just driving right by it. People don't even recognize the trees half the time, or more than half the time. And that, that abundance totally exists. It's within our grasp. We just have to recognize the trees and go out and, and use them. It, we're just we're seeing these gifts fall onto the ground and, and wondering where, where we're going to get our money, where we're going to get our food, how we're going to create sustainability. It's right there in front of us. We just have to 
take the time, get out of the car, and, and, and take it. Though I will say this. I've cracked a lot of black walnuts in my day, and it's not quite as, as uh, easy to acquire a food source as chestnut. I'm, That's true. Chestnut but the reason... Like, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, yeah, chestnuts are way easier, right? But a lot of these gifts that fall from the trees, we just have to know how to open a present. So, like, black walnuts, if you're just sitting there by yourself cracking them one by one, yeah, it's a pain in the butt. But if you were to go to Hammond's in Missouri, is a black walnut processing plant, and they have industrial machinery that they can process millions of pounds of black walnuts. And you can go there and buy bottles of black walnut oil. You can buy pounds and pounds of nut meat. And it's all pretty much wild harvested. Uh, they just buy nuts from people around the countryside. Um, so it's really like a matter of people working together. So like the same thing with acorns. There's a lot of work. But what if there was acorn processing stations in your county or in every county? Um, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, kind of moving toward that business mindset, how did you build your nursery business? Uh, I just, you know, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that makes a lot of plans. <laughs> like sometimes I'll daydream about things, but I don't make like a business plan. Um, but I was, uh, you know, I, I, we bought this property and I just wanted to homestead. You know, I was like, I just want to live with the land, work with the seasons. And, you know, I have my beautiful wife and I just want to live here and be happy. And, uh, But then I had to go to work to pay for the mortgage and the taxes, and and I and it's a long drive to town. It's 30 minutes to get to anywhere I could work, and I and I just hated commuting and just freaking hated it. And one day I was uh, in town and I ran into a friend and we were chatting and I was like, I just wish I could make money at home. And he looked at me and he's like, two words, plant propagation. And I was like, that makes so much sense. I just love pr propagating trees. Uh, I find it so enjoyable, so uh, I just started, I was like, yeah, I've been doing this as a hobby, and I just started trying to grow as many as I could and then see if I could sell them on Craigslist or whatever, and and I, and I, and I started to, and then it kind of grew and grew over time. I, I never spent any money on the nursery unless I made it first, and uh, and after uh, a couple years, I I, uh, I started selling trees online, and once I opened up the online store, I was just like, boom, forget it. I quit my job, stopped working anywhere else but home because the online sales were just tremendous. It was whatever I posted online I could sell. And I was like, well, then I just have to grow as many trees as I can. And if I'm not doing anything else, if I'm not driving to town, then I can grow a lot of freaking trees. So, uh, yeah, I've just been doing that, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really a lot of fun. Can you talk about exactly what your method of propagation of trees is? Do you do mostly from seed? Uh, do you do rooty cuttings? What, what, what are you doing and what are you? I mean, I'm, obviously you're going to be working with chestnuts, but what else might you be working with? I do, I do everything I can. I mean, I just I try not to be too scatterbrained about it. But, uh, I, I get, you know, some people get like a bug for gardening. It's just like that. Like, they're like, oh, I'm going to grow peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers this year. And I'm going to grow lettuce and I'm going to grow eggplant. And well, that's what it's like for the trees for me. So I grow them in uh, bare root beds. And so there's almost no pots involved. It's pretty much just looks like a big garden. And all the garden beds, instead of filled with vegetables, are just filled with seedlings or rooted cuttings or grafted trees. And I, I do every kind of propagation I, I can. I, I get really fascinated by the concept of propagation. And so uh, 
I, I just enjoy like rooting. I do hardwood cuttings and softwood cuttings and uh, grafting and budding, and I do a ton from seed, and uh, and I grow chestnuts, but I also grow a lot of other uh, nut trees and a lot of fruit trees and uh, a ton of berry, different kinds of berry bushes and uh, the perennials. Cause my wife, she's really into medic- herbal medicinal plants, so I, I planted all these huge beds of uh, herbs for her. And then I use those as a plant stock, too. Can, can you maybe talk a little bit about how your methodology works? Like, you, you mentioned beds. Like, what, what does your operation look like? What is, what is kind of your process flow? Um, well, uh, basically, like I said, it's like a huge garden. And uh, what I do is I go through in the spring, and I, I'll, I'll have the beds uh, clean. You know, there's no weeds. They're very well fed. I keep the soil like incredibly fertile. I add lots and lots of compost, um, lots of mulch, and uh, the, the beds are super deep and uh, re- really, really rich, like the ultimate garden bed. And then I, I'll, uh, in the spring, I'll, I'll be planting seeds in the bed or, uh, or, or just cuttings, or I'll be putting transplants in, like, like tiny trees that I grew the year before or trees that I grafted over the winter. And, uh, and I'll plant it all out in the spring, and in the summer, it's really just, just keeping it all weeded, keeping it all mulched, making sure uh, everybody's watered and taken care of. And then in the fall, um, I'll, I'll start uh, inventorying everything, seeing what did I grow this year, and I'll start counting through the beds, and I'll, I'll post that inventory on our website. And then around November, we've, we've had some pretty hard freezes by November, uh, and the trees will go dormant. And once they go dormant, I just start digging uh, I'll get a whole bunch of friends. Last year, I had eight people uh, that I hired to help me dig trees. Uh, I grew twenty thousand trees last year, wow. and digging them up takes a, takes a while. It's not like something I could just do in a week, right? It's something I need, but it has to get done in a week. So because we have this window, you know, it's it's going dormant, and the trees have lost their leaves. They can be safely moved now, but winter is coming, and I need to get everything set for winter. So we, I just get a crew, a crew, and we dig everything up, and uh, it's kind of nice having the beds really deep and really friable because the trees come out really easily. You know, they, they just slip right out of the ground sometimes. And uh, and then I take all these trees, we, we count them again to make sure we have a good count, and then I, I bundle them and heal them in, which is basically like I'll take maybe 50 to 100 trees at a time, put them in a bundle, dig a hole, pack, it full, pack them full of soil so their roots are totally covered in soil and uh and everything's you know labeled and then uh and then the snows will start falling and i just i just go to sleep and uh <laughs> yeah and then in the, over the course of the winter people will be placing orders and uh they'll and then i'll in the spring i'll pull all those plants and, and send them out all over the country and then and then i'll start as soon as i finish getting my orders out i'm i'm planting next year's stuff um, so I just do that every year, and there's kind of like a rhythm to it that I'm starting to get better and better at with each year. Um, but all the trees I grow are either one or two years old. I almost never grow something that's three years old because they, in in the friable, highly fertile bed, they just get too big after three years, and it's too much work to transplant them, and I would never be able to ship them. Sure. So. Do you manage to sell most of your stuff bare root shipped? Do you end up with surplus that you have to do, figure out what to do with uh, in addition to what gets ordered and shipped every year? Because it kind of sounds like your work is bursty 
So that's kind of cool because you, you probably right. have some types of parts of the year where you're not working as hard as others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, well, the first part of that question, I, um, I I used to always have leftover stuff. I remember growing chestnuts in the nursery and thinking, God, I wish I could sell these to somebody, but nobody wants them, so I just grow them for myself. And now I can't grow enough. Like, I will never meet the demand. And I pretty much sell all my plants out every single year uh, at this point, but, uh, but I didn't used to. And what I used to do with all the leftovers is I would pot them up. I would just put them in pots and then try to sell them on Craigslist over the summer or go to plant sales in town uh, and just kind of hustling, trying to find who's going to buy this $20 plant. Um, but now it, it, they just all sell out. Usually by April 1st, I'm sold out of everything, um, which is way easier for me. But it's also kind of sometimes I feel like stressed out being sold out of things. Like I want to have things available when people are offering me money, but I just realized I, I cannot grow enough trees to meet the demands of the of this country. There's so many people that are gardening and planting. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, and then the the second part of your question was like, yeah, the work is really bursty. Like I have periods of time where I have to work every single minute of the day and well into the night. Um, like when I'm shipping, I, I'm out there with a headlamp. Like I just I just don't stop. And then there's times I don't have anything to do for a month, you know, and I just, I play with the kids a lot. I read a lot of books and uh, I've been getting really into writing lately. Um, so. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So um, what are some of the trees that you grow that need maybe more attention and energy than, than maybe like chestnut, which is a pretty hardy tree? It's, it's hard to grow them here, but in the Northeast, you put a chestnut on the ground and if everything goes right for a year, it's it's on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think pawpaws are probably uh, one of the most difficult trees I grow just because they grow so slow. They, uh, I'll plant seeds in the spring, and they won't germinate until August or September, and then they'll grow about an inch, and then uh, we'll get our first frost, and that's it. That's all I get the first year, and then the second year they'll grow maybe 12 inches, and and uh, and they put it on this huge tap root, and everybody wants pawpaw trees, but man, it's really hard to produce like a nice pawpaw tree. Um, lot, most of the other trees I grow are really easy. Like I grow a lot of persimmons and apples and pears and that kind of stuff. And and uh, for the most part, they're pretty pretty uh, straightforward. They grow really fast. Plums grow really fast. Hazelnuts, butternuts, they, all that stuff grows really fast. I try to we mostly work with plants that I like. That uh, I don't really like fussing around with with sensitive stuff. Uh, I used to like try to mess around and get like figs or lemons to grow here, but it's yeah. just not worth the effort. Uh, you know, I like, you know, if I'm gonna put like an hour of work into something, I like to get a lot back. And so I, I try to pick like super re rewarding plants. And uh, yeah. So like when you mentioned apples, are you doing grafting or are you doing all seed grown plants when when it comes to like apples and plums? Yeah, I do uh, both. I grow a ton of apples from seed uh, for a couple of different reasons. Like one, to grow my own rootstocks. Uh, two, for just I get a lot of people who plant stuff for deer and conservation, and so they they don't care if it's grafted or not. They just want seedlings. Um, and then uh, and, and then just genetic diversity is is pretty exciting to me. But uh, but yeah, I graft a lot of trees. I graft about uh, I think. I kind of reached my comfort zone. I graft like 2,000 fruit trees every winter. And uh, beyond that, I start to feel too busy and too stressed, and I don't like it. So 
but uh, but 2000 it's like not a big deal for me to get through for like basically the month of months of February and March I just kind of graft trees at a leisurely pace and then uh, plant them all out in the spring um, but yeah I love grafting it took me like a while to learn and I caught myself a bunch of times but, <laughs> but now I feel like I now I feel like I have it down uh, after doing it for several years and uh, it's a great skill to have like I feel like anybody that is into uh, propagation it, it's it can be intimidating at first but it's like the first time I tried grafting I I uh, tried apples and I just uh, had 20 trees and I grafted them I had no idea what I was doing I just I just had like a sharp knife and I just kind of stuck stuff on stuck the cyan wood on and 19 out of 20 took um, so apples are really forgiving and uh, I, I don't always have the highest success rate but that first time I did I had 95% or whatever and so you know I think grafting is, is pretty amazing it's an amazing process It is. Part of why I bring that up, though, is I think a lot of people don't realize how how much productivity we can get out of trees that are seed-grown, uh, specifically apples. Like, back, I, I read this, I can't remember the name of the book now, but it was a book on old apple varieties, but it started out with, like, basically the story of apples in America and how, the, like, one of the first things homesteaders did was plant an apple orchard, which they did from seed. And how you right. know, over time that family would develop this orchard of apple trees and they wouldn't be like, okay, I'm going to put my cider apples here and I'm going to put my vinegar apples here and my dessert apples here. They would just plant everything and they'd be like, after a while, okay, this tree makes a good apple for making vinegar. This tree makes a good apple for fresh eating. This tree makes – and, and they, they just did that. And we have this – I think it's like a, a, an insidious myth. Insidious because it causes harm. Uh, it, it may not be the most harmful thing out there, but – This belief that, like, if you plant an apple seed, you're going to get a, a terrible crab apple. Like, that's what's going to turn yeah. into crab. And it's just ridiculous. And it's a lie. And especially the seed that we have now from all these improved apple varieties, they're carrying all the genetics that made that. So the opportunity there is huge. Now, if you plant a yellow, delicious apple seed, you're not going to get a yellow, delicious apple, but you're going to get a useful apple. Right. Yeah, I, and as I think, all apples are useful. Like I have not found an apple that's not good for feeding pigs, or an apple that can't be made into vinegar. Like, they're all useful. And and uh, I read somewhere once that uh, if you plant an apple from seed, one in ten thousand is going to be a good eating apple. And that's bullshit because no. oh, I didn't mean to swear. I'm sorry. That's okay. You but, can. Uh, it's, on this show, it's okay. <laughs> all right. Well, if you think about one in ten thousand, it's ridiculous. So I live in upstate New York, and Wild apple is basically an invasive species here. There's wild apples everywhere. They grow all along the roadsides. They're in old pastures. They're all over the place. And I, everywhere I go in the fall, me and the kids, we're always tasting apples. Always. That's just what people do around here. And you always try them. When you see apples on the ground, you go try them. And, uh, you know, it's about one in three, one in four apples is really good. And these are all seed-grown apples. These are just wild trees. It's, it's like one in four. It's a good apple. And then every once in a while, we find one that's, like, amazing. I mean, it's, like, it's incredible. It's worthy of being grafted, you know. So, I don't know. I, I get annoyed at that, too. It's, it's, it's not fair to the apple tree, and it's not fair to us to not be growing these trees from seed. That's the, that's the, that, that stat is an example of a, a truth masquerading as a lie or a lie masquerading as a truth. I'm not sure how I'd, I'd, I'd put, point that out. What that that stat actually is is if like you were running trials and you put in twenty thousand apple trees and you were looking for the next apple tree that you're going to put in the Stark Brothers catalog or market to orchardists in Washington State or something, 
you'll get one in 10,000 that will be so outstanding, so amazing, so new that it would become a new name variety. If you were doing it based on current industry standards, which is I want a cardboard apple that doesn't, you know, doesn't get bruised when I ship it or something like that. So they take that right. number and then that number's become, well, you'll get 9,999 apple trees that suck. And it's just, it's not true. And a lot of times you'll end up with an apple that like, yeah, it's not a great eating apple, but it might be a fantastic hard cider apple. Or it might be an amazing right. vinegar apple, you know, and, and it's such a, you're talking about the abundance of chestnuts. I mean, with chestnuts and apples, you could go a long way to feed in the country. And apples are so adaptable. You know, you've got, I can't think of his name now, but the uh, guy out in, in California growing apples in the desert in 110 degree weather, you know, so like uh -huh. widely adaptable as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, the same thing. I mean, well, there's a couple of things I want to say about that, but. So, with um, with that lie masquerading as a truth, you're saying is that what happens is somebody says something, and then somebody else just repeats it, and then a lot of times that's all that's happened. It's just something got repeated. Um, but as far as adapt adaptability, the apples are super adaptable, and so are the chestnuts. It's really underrated because we've really focused on just certain species and certain populations within those species. So. There's like a tree called the Ozark chinkapin that uh, does really well in alkaline soils, in, in limestone soils. It's from the Ozark Plateau. And there's, there's, there's trees in China, chestnuts that grow basically out of sand. And, and then there's trees that grow, grow out of heavy clay. Um, there's, I think if we tap into the real diversity in the genus, we'll find that we can find chestnuts that grow in all parts of the country. I'm not saying I have trees for all parts of the country. I'm saying that we can do it in the genetic diversity. Yeah, we could definitely do it if we focused our efforts and uh, paid attention and worked with these trees. I have a really harsh environment here, limestone soils. I went with chingapins. I planted a dozen chingapins. I doesn't sound like a lot, but I was kind of. I'll just make this little area, the chingapin area, and 11 of them died a horrific death. You know what? Though? Yeah. One of them is kicking butt, man. And oh, so nice. that's, you know, I don't know. Well, I have to find another one to get some cross-pollination. Right, pollination, right? Yeah. So I got to find another one well, to live. But we are in the middle of the worst drought, I think, ever in this area right now. It's, it's, I, I'm terrified of a, a, a match getting dropped somewhere and setting a whole place on fire. And hopefully it'll rain this week. But that tree, with a little bit of irrigation in a swale-based system, is growing right now this year. And if it'll live through this year... If anything kills that, if anything worse happens, I'm moving anyway. I'm done. This is it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I, this is this is all I can take. This is this is as much as I can I can tolerate uh, this year of drought. So, like your point wow. is well made there. That like so we even with just doing 12, we found one, and and so now I'll just get a whole bunch more of seedlings because they were I got them from Bob Wells and they're pretty expensive. But you know, yeah. you just get a hold of seed stock and just. Blitzkrieg it. If you can get two, then you got a whole new set of genetics you can work with. And, and, and I think we can do that with apples. We can do that with pers We can do that with everything. We can do it with pears. Uh, pears have yeah, been well, like, th that's another hardy plant. People think, oh, it's a pear, you got a baby and all. I've got friggin' uh, Chinese pears here, uh, or Japanese pears, Asian pears, I guess you'd say, that are seed grown that survive in this climate. That, and it, regular grafting ones will do okay, but the, the ones that are grown from seed, they're like, They're like honey badgers. They don't care. And they, they're smaller, but they taste great. Right. Well, I actually, uh, we go up to the National Forest and collect wild pears every fall, and we sell them to the cidery 
And it, these pears are wild pears are different. They're they're like rock hard, mm-hmm. and they they're the most astringent, horrible, bitter <laughs> fruit you can imagine. But the cideries, they love them. They make perry, which is like hard cider for, from pears. Yeah, and they pay top dollar for these wild pears. And we, we some of these trees are so big, and they're so loaded. We'll get a thousand pounds off a single tree sometimes, and uh, they, they pay seventy cents a pound. So if you sit there all day just picking these pears up, you can make a lot of money in a day. And these are just wild fruits. So I always, you know, I sell the fruit to them, and then they press it for the juice and ferment it, but they give me back the pumice. And then I take all the pumice with all the seeds in it, and then I grow those out um, because I'm planting those types of wild pears all over my property. Like, they're just amazing for wildlife, livestock, and the cider. It's it is pretty amazing. It makes me think about moving back to the northeast often, at least somewhere in the area, because it was so much easier up there, honestly, to grow stuff like that. Uh, but what you're saying about like it's just sitting there and all you do is go pick it up. It's a different subject, but same lack of I guess motivation by people that will sit around and complain about not having enough. Uh, when I was a kid in high school, there was this old abandoned mine shack up on the mountain where I lived in Pennsylvania, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these old electric motors that they used to use to blow uh, ventilation out of the mine so people would die. And there uh-huh. were huge steel frames on them, so they were really heavy, but they were full of copper. And you couldn't get you couldn't get a motorcycle into where this place was. It was pretty much you hiked up into this place, and I didn't have a motorcycle yet anyway because I didn't have any money. And I hiked up there my, my the year before I was going to be old enough to get a driver's license. I hiked up there with a backpack every day and a pair of tin snips and a pair of pliers. I sit there and cut all the end off one side of them and pull all the copper out of them and throw it in the backpack. And so there was like this giant pile. I mean, like you'd feel like a 12 by 12 room to the ceiling pile of these things laying there. And then there's this little bitty pile of the empty frames that I threw off to the side when I was 16 years old. So all my friends were like, you're lucky you have a car. And I'm like, there's it's up there, just go get it, you know. And I got they right. And then I went back, God, like 16, 18 years later to visit my dad. And I took a walk up there, and that same pile of empty frames, no bigger than the way I left it, was sitting there. And that same pile with all of that copper sitting, it was sitting there. And this is a town where people are dead broke. Everybody's looking to try to figure out how to make a dollar, supposedly. And that's just sitting there. But it took work. And I'll tell you what, it's easier to go pick up pears than it is to pull copper out of of an old uh, motor from the 1920s. I mean, really. Well, either way... The, the, I see the same thing you're talking about because I live in this area and it, the southern tier of New York, is, everybody talks about how depressed it is. The economy sucks. There's no jobs. I'm like, you live in the most fertile land in the world. There's there's everything all around you. All you have to do is change your mindset, change your life, right? Like, it's all it's all there. Like, I could go anywhere in the country and find some way to make money, whether the economy was, was great or terrible. I can find resources wherever I go only because of my attitude, because I I can recognize things. I can realize that the universe is abundant. I'm not groping mm-hmm. and whining about things. And, and I think a lot of people get stuck in that mindset. And I, I wish I could just, I wish I could just help people, but you know, people got to help themselves. I think yeah. you have to be able to see, they have to see their, they have to have their own positive attitude. So. It's, it's vision and it's work ethic, and the two things have to go together. Because I know people that will work their butt off, but they have no vision. And I have people that I know people that have great ideas, but 
they don't have a work ethic, and those two have to go together. And a lot of that comes with having energy. And in your so it's a good transition. In your notes, you had a, a thing here about uh, increasing our own energy, so we can do that great work. So can you maybe say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I see such like well, it doesn't even matter what I see, but I I know that I have found ways to increase my own energy, and the number one way is to follow my inspirations. So if I feel inspired about something, then I do it. If if I don't feel inspired, then I'm not going to do it. And uh, I find that's like probably the most important thing is if there is always in every human, if they pay attention, they're going to find something that's exciting to them. And it might be like really scary and like, I don't even know how that's going to work out. But if you just follow it, you have no idea where it's going to lead. Um, so I think following your inspirations is, is huge. But then, but then like once you're on your path and you're following your inspirations, sometimes you have to work so hard to make a living. It's It's just phenomenal. Like, like, sometimes I can't believe how hard I work. I'm like, I should have a million dollars by now. <laughs> but I still have to, like, hustle just to pay the mortgage this month. And uh, when, when, I'm, when I get like that and I'm like, I need to work more, I just, I just start. I have to do all these breathing exercises. I do, like, these crazy deep breathing exercises. This guy, Wim Hof, uh, he's all over YouTube, whatever. But he does these crazy deep breathing exercises, and then he submerses his body in ice water. So uh, I started doing that, and it sounds crazy, but I feel vitally healthy from doing these things. Like, I I don't need to sleep as much. I, I'm awake. So I don't know. There, there's a million other ways people can do, you know, there's, there's like, martial arts, there's yoga. And, and, it, and it, what happens is I think people think that they need to save their energy, and you don't need to save it. No. It's the opposite. So, like, a marathon runner doesn't sit on the couch all month saving his energy up for the marathon they're running all the time and that creates more energy it just stimulates it and so if you think of your energy as like inside your body it's not it's not like a water tank that you're drawing some energy you're drawing some water out of every day it's more like a wellspring and a spring flows better when you pull water out of it and so you just keep pulling out pulling out and every time you get off your butt every time you start breathing really deep or start running or walking or slap yourself in the face, do, do 10 push-ups, you know, brush your teeth, just make yourself do something, you'll have more energy later. And before you know it, you'll just be, like, buzzing. And, and to be honest, I'm 39 years old. I have more energy than I had when I was 18. I'm, I'm bubbling with energy. I can't even barely contain it most of the time. Um, so, I don't know, I try, I try to, like, settle down. Like, I'm doing this interview with you, and I told myself before, like, just, just slow down. Breathe, calm down, but I know I'm not going to be able to. I just get too excited. All no, time. man, get worked up because that makes it interesting. It's it's hard to do an interview with somebody when they're like, oh, you know, uh, even if they have good material when they're in that like complete low key, unexcited. And I'll tell you part of what it is is like the reason you have so much energy is because you're doing something you really believe in and you love. And I think that's like one of the number one things. But but I'm totally with you on. Get up, get moving, and do something. And some things that seem like ridiculously too simple, especially for work from home entrepreneurs. So the issue you get when you start working from home, like you know, I, I did myself about nine years ago now, is because you have total freedom, you can do things like walk around in your underwear till ten o'clock in the morning. Get up, right. and get, get up and get dressed. Like get up early, put your clothes on, take your shower, do whatever your morning ritual is, and get dressed, and 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 then make breakfast. Because I know, like for me, like for the first couple of months, it was like, ah, you know, I, I, just because you could, and then you start to realize, like, I don't actually feel like the switch in my mind turns on to really get things done until I put my clothes on, 
Because your mind has become conditioned to, like, when you're walking around in your underwear, that's at night right before you go to bed. So you're still in that mode. And, and that type of thing, I think, has a huge impact on it. And I think taking a walk is probably the easiest thing that anybody can do. And it's part of why I hate our summers here. Because, like, I'll walk, my property's three acres, I'll walk around it. And just, just a basic walk around it, flat, three-acre property. And you come in, and the first thing I do is take my shirt off. And throw it in the laundry. Right. Because it looks like something well, dumped in a pool, right? You know? So Yeah, I used to live in Georgia, so I know. Oh yeah, that's like here with a with a plastic bag wrapped around you. Uh <laughs> so you know, I'll right. jump in the pool that's or something. Mean... I'll jump in the pool, that helps. Like uh now the cold water thing. I'll tell you when I was in the RV, when I went through one of our field training exercises, we had ice cold water and like after three days, you don't care. You you're three days in the field, you can take a shower, you can take a shower. So I gotta take a shot. I remember this drill sergeant saying, "Man, one day you'll be living in the civilian life again, and you will never have to take a cold shower again. But you will do it every once in a while, just to remember how lucky you are to have a hot shower." <laughs> I've never felt the need. I have never turned the water all the way to cold ever again. I like a hot shower, but it does wake you up. You know, it makes me like yeah. when I was in, I used to have an apartment complex when I first moved here that I lived in, and they had a hot tub like right next to the pool. And, man, you come out of that hot tub and go straight into that pool, it does kind of revitalize you. I think it, it has to do a lot with blood flow is why that works. Definitely, yeah. And I only started doing the cold water thing because I was getting these migraine headaches that were just killing me. It was destroying my life. And uh, I read that the, the hot, cold showers could help. So I started doing it. And now I I don't get the migraines anymore, but I realize, like, how beneficial that cold water was for me. And so I do it all the time. Um, but, uh, but I just want to say, like, you want to go for a walk and it's 110 degrees out, maybe it's a good idea to walk at night because sure. the night is amazing in those places like that. Hot nights are incredible. I, where I live, it's it's never warm at night, but uh, I, I would almost be jealous of someone that could walk around <laughs> in a warm night. It sounds now, pretty nice. This time of year, you, you get up and it's still dark out walk in the morning because, like, I, I swear to God, it'll be 99 degrees at midnight. That's, really? Yeah, that's just, it's like, that's it's amazing almost, to me. It's almost insulting, though. You're like, really? You know, <laughs> like, come on. Actually, we're about to hit a cold front, so I'm pretty psyched about that. We'll have, you know, highs in like the mid 90s, so that'll be a cold front for us. It'll be awesome for like three days and wow. it'll be like 110. But. So, man, you got a book coming out <laughs> with uh, Chelsea Green. Uh, tell, us right. about, tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, I, I, you know, I always wrote articles for our website. I just like writing. And then uh, people always say, you should write a book. You should write a book. I'm like, I'm never going to write a book. I don't have time. I have three little kids. I work all the time. Like, I'm not going to write a book. And then uh, this winter, I just I just uh, was at the computer one night. And I just it just started pouring out of me. And I just kept couldn't stop writing. I wrote till like midnight that night. And then, and then every night, all winter, it was like as soon as I would get the kids to bed, I would just run down to the computer and start writing. And I did that for like three months straight. And before I knew it, I had this whole book and uh, I sent it to a bunch of publishers and uh, Chelsea Green wrote back and they were like, we like it, we'll, we'll publish it. And so uh, it's in the editing process right now and it'll be coming out this winter. And it's, uh, it's about trees and, and uh, it's broken down in two parts. The first part is all uh, propagation and planting skills, you know, how to do cuttings, grafting, layering, seeds all the different tricks and things I've learned uh, while doing my nursery. And then uh, and then the second half is about individual trees, like a really close look. So I just picked 10 different types of trees and, and looked 
really close at, you know, Black Locust, Apple, um, Chestnut Beach. And then, uh, and so each tree, it looks at the propagation of it, but also like how all the ways to use its products, like the different types of wood they make, the different foods they make, how to process those foods. And then, uh, then there's on each section, how to make money working with this tree, because that's like the whole premise of the book is that like, if we partner with these trees, we're not just like making the world better. Like nobody's going to go out there and plant a million trees just because they love nature. People are going to plant a million trees because they are making money. And, uh, so like if we're working with nature, it's got to be just as beneficial to us. So the section has a, a part, each chapter has a part on how to use this to make money. And it's all these different ideas of, of, of how, uh, you know, different things I've tried or things I've uh, dreamt about. Well, I think, like, that's one of the places that the people that are more left-leaning in this in this niche tend to miss the point if, if you want success. So you said, like, nobody's going to plant a million trees just because they love the earth. Pro probably not, but even if they wanted to, okay, that where are you going to plant a million trees? For, like, a guy like you, you may propagate and be responsible for the planting of a million trees in your lifetime, maybe more. Uh, but you, where would you, if I said, yep, here you go, here's a million trees, go plant them, you, you only have so much room to plant. So for, for you to be able to make that contribution, the trees have to go somewhere, they have to go to other people's land, other hands have to touch them and put them in the ground and care for them, you know, harden them off, that type of thing. So for that to all work, yeah. you have to be profitable Because I'll tell you what you're really not going to do, not, not just not plant a million trees, you're not going to plant 50 trees for Jack Spirico, put them in a box and ship them to me because right. you like the earth. Like you're, there's, there's, and, right. and you're not going to, even if you wanted to, if I had like the amazing Randy hypnotize you and you thought you wanted to, you have to pay the bills to be able to spend that time to make that happen. And, and I think right. like that's what I really like about what you're doing because I, I want to get into your course next. Unlike a lot of people that are out there today putting out courses in things, this is what you do. You pay your family's bills with this. And that is a good thing. And I don't know how we ever got into a place in America where we stopped thinking that was a good thing. That, that being able to make money was a, a, becomes a bad word or a bad thing. Um, there's certainly corporate greed out there and all, but for the average person that wants to start a, you know, to improve their life, entrepreneurship is the one of the greatest things in the world they can do, and it's one of the greatest gifts in America that it is so easy to do. Um, so right. with that in mind, talk about you know maybe that a little bit and kind of move into like what you're doing as far as empowering other people through this course you have. Well, um, before I talk about the course, I, I just want to respond to what you're saying. So like, yeah, it is vital that if we're going to have a relationship with nature, that it's two ways. Like we have to be not um, just giving, 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 but we also have to be receiving. Otherwise, it's not a relationship. That's not a healthy relationship, at least, right? So it's really important that we can, like, in a, since the beginning of time, we have always gathered all of our sustenance from nature. And we can still do that today. We just have to do it in a little bit different way than our ancestors did. So I'm still gathering from nature. I'm still getting things out of the ground, still gathering things from the branches of trees, and then I just convert it all into money. And that money propels me to do more of it you're you're darn right like i'm not going to to plant anything and ship it anywhere if i'm not getting paid to do it and that's not because i'm like heartless it's because i have so much time and energy and i need to make money somewhere right so it's really important that we that we're receiving 
But it's also on the flip side, like like you're saying, like the the leftist leaning mindset. They they're just like, oh, they just want to give to nature and not take anything. And then and, and too far to the right. And then you're just taking, 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 but not giving. Like, so it's got to be, at least in my mind, that we appreciate nature. That we mm-hmm. because you're gonna feel good when you love nature. You feel great when you love these plants that you're working with. You feel great. If all you're thinking about is what am I gonna get? What am I gonna get? That's that's not a healthy relationship either. So it's gotta be, it's got there's gotta be some kind of balance there. Where like, and the cool thing about that is, the more you appreciate, the more you get. And the more you want to do for nature, the more it's going to give to you. And uh, so that's just what I've noticed in my life. But uh, so anyways, this course I created is called Abundant Propagation. So I, I quickly realized, like, I cannot meet the demand. Like, my nursery is, is small. Like, it sound, like, I know it might sound like, oh, 20,000 trees is nothing. Uh, lawyer nursery out west, they grow 3 million trees a year, and they're shutting down. And who's going to fill that void? Three million trees? I'm not going to grow three million trees every year. I, um, Vermont Willow Company, they're closing down. Like, there's, so, there's such a huge demand right now. There are so many people that want to plant a tree for, for the butterflies, or they want to plant a tree for, for birds, or they want to plant a tree to grow some food in their garden, or they're starting a permaculture farm or they're starting a regular farm. There's just so many people in this country planting trees right now. It's phenomenal. I can't meet the demand, and I have people asking me all the time, uh, how, do I, how do I grow this? How do I grow that? How do I start this from cuttings? How do I start these from seeds? And uh, I sell a lot of seed and cuttings, and I always give instructions, and I always get more questions. And so I just created this course, Abundant Propagation is what I call it, and people sign up, and what they get, is uh, they get the seeds and they get some cuttings and these seeds come in the mail throughout the growing season and a lot in the fall. And then I give them instructions. I basically coach them through the process of turning these seeds and cuttings into, into trees. And so it's a really simple course. It's like a few hundred dollars. And with a few hundred dollars, if you do, if you do everything, you'll wind up with a few hundred trees. So it's like a really good deal. So you're not just like learning the skills of like, how do I propagate? You're actually learning the skill by doing it and then having the plants at the end. So anyway, that's what the class is. That, that's awesome. And, on, you know, when you were talking about the, you know, going either direction too far, I completely agree. And I think that humans can be a parasite on the earth. But there's an interesting thing when you actually look at the relationship that we call a, a parasitic relationship. That is, by definition, when one side takes without giving back. And so if you if you put yourself in the position of only giving and never getting what you need out of it, you basically turn even a benign thing like nature into a parasite. And it's not sustainable. It doesn't uh-huh. matter whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. It, it doesn't work. And, right, you'll burn yourself out. Right, and then if you take without replenishing... Eventually, you destroy what you're taking from, and it also doesn't work. That the only sustainable relationships in the universe are symbiotic relationships. 
And and that's kind of yeah, what I was digging on what you were talking about in the beginning when we first started that you know you go look at the woods and nature and we we've we've, we've convinced ourselves through some kind of weird greenwashing that like what man is supposed to do is leave no footprints and touch nothing and 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 the sentiment is good but like when 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 we first had people started coming here from the 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 old world settling this place they didn't even see in front of them the uh the agriculture of the native peoples the indigenous peoples here they they were like walking through these park like woods that were cleared out with all this abundance and they had no understanding of the sophistication that was going on and that system was one of the most sustainable that ever existed right yeah i, I totally agree with you i think it's going to be a conversation a relationship is a conversation you do and then you hear the response And then you do again, and you hear the response. And that's what it's like when you work with land. You 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 listen. You see what the response is, and then you take. And you do, it's just the give and take and going back and forth. And if you're in a conversation where you're, like, angry and worried and nervous and scared, and you're like, I need more, I need more, I'm not going to get enough, then you're going to be a jerk. But if you're in a conversation where you're like, what do you need? What can I do for you? How can I help? You know, I really need this thing. I really need that thing. It's amazing how different you'll be responded to if you can act from a place of uh, trust and and appreciation. Almost like, you know, that permaculture principle of apply self-regulation and accept feedback is actually a thing. That's actually a good idea, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's because that's that's what we have to do with any system. And like th that's what I think indigenous people like around the world really understood no matter where you go. That's why you see those. Those three ethics in permaculture come from that mindset that you can only take so much from something. And it doesn't matter what the law says or what you can get away with. In the end, you can only take so many fish from a stream before the, fish, the stream is no good for fishing anymore. And you can only put so much runoff back into that stream before if you don't take a single fish out of it, you kill them all anyway. And it's not like it's right. hard to figure out. It's not like we don't know this intrinsically as beings. Uh, right. And go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, you can only take so many fish from a stream, but what What if you knew how to manage that stream so there was more fish in it? What if you knew how to, how to enhance that ecosystem so that it provided even more? Like, you know, like we say, oh, I could only take so many trees out of the forest because I like, you know, like there's a lot of logging in my area. This is all hills where I live, mm -hmm. and it's all forested. And, uh, you know, you can only take so many trees out before they're all gone. Well, if you do it correctly, there can actually be more wood produced in the woodlands than if, if they're logged properly than if they're left alone. Like, we can say, oh, there's X amount of trees on this hill, but if we manage that forest in a, in a really intelligent way where we actually know the ecosystem intimately, then we can have more abundance. There, there can be more there. So it's not just like, oh, there's this much in nature and we can take this much. We can increase what exists in nature. Absolutely. It's it's kind of a co-creation thing. And it's like, it's also like forest management is a huge thing. I know that's important to you because of what you do, but you can make forests not only produce more trees and give more and, and have more, but you can make them more resilient against things like what we're dealing with right now, like wildfires. Like the, the, the concept of not yeah. touching a forest, then when it burns to the ground, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised because you've done nothing to remove... The, the, the massive amount of dead fuel wood that's laying there on the ground rotting for, for you know, and, and you've done nothing to, to, like, identify specific snags and things that need to be removed. 
because I've, I've seen things that are really kind of fascinating, but you understand how forest fires spread. So I've, I have this one picture that I took while I was in Colorado a few years ago, and it's a completely burnt spruce, like the, the bottom's burnt and hanging from another spruce that didn't burn. And it's about five feet off the ground is the bottom of this tree. is almost somebody cut it, but cut it with fire. And uh -huh. so, so what happened is it burnt down low. It fell over, snagged in the upper tree, and then kind of fell in like a trapeze artist and then just burned out and didn't set the other tree on fire. But you could see how in a situation where you have a much greater fire risk that that's literally like domino spreading fire. And forest management can go in and say, hey, these are the trees that we need to remove. Even if we want to let this become old growth, there are some trees that if we take out of here, if there is a fire, we won't lose all these old growth trees. I've also seen redwoods in California where you can tell there's been fires there many times and the trees are just black on the bottom and they're healthy and growing because they're so big and so resilient. So the concept right. of just leaving everything alone... I saw that also in uh, Colorado in Estes Park, and there was these trees that the beetles killed, the blue the blue fungus beetles or whatever, and like the whole yeah. mountainside is dead trees. And I was talking to the forest ranger guy, and I'm like, why don't you like log those out? Do I mean they're dead? Oh, we don't want to touch anything. And I'm like, uh, that's going to create a mudslide. And of course, yeah. I was basically told you, you're an uneducated redneck. Don't worry about it. We know what we're doing. And next year, major rains at Estes Park was covered in mud, and it's like. I, I don't understand how you don't see this. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea to say, like, leave nature alone, don't touch anything. And then the same people that are going to say that, they're still going to have, like, a lawn. They're still going to, like, drive somewhere and, and walk on the earth. Like, their ecosystems are everywhere. It's not just that the ecosystem is in a designated area that we call a park. The ecosystem is everywhere we go. And if you can't see that you can create more habitat for butterflies and birds and grow your own food, then you probably never had a garden. And uh, I think it, I think it's, that's what I want. I don't want people just to, like, have this concept of, like, yeah, uh, it's good for people to interact with nature. I want people to interact with nature. I want to see, like, when I drive down the road in the fall and I'm stopping everywhere to collect nuts, I want to see other people doing the same thing. Like, I, I want this to become, and I, it's not like I'm like, oh, I want to save the world. I just would like to see this cultural shift of where people start interacting with nature because it will be good for nature and it will be good for people just to get their bodies moving outside, interacting with nature as we were intended to do. Well, that's, that's, that's we the key. That's we were created for. That's the key. We are nature. We, we have come up with this, this mindset that, like, nature's over there and then we are over here. We are part of this planet. We are part of these ecosystems. We have also gotten to the point where we have enough intellectual capacity to understand that doing this is beneficial and doing this is harmful. So I think we have a responsibility to not just go nuts with it, but in the end, we are as much a part of the earth as an oak tree or a deer or a lion or a gazelle or an angelfish. We are as much a life form in this biosphere as any other life form here. That doesn't mean we can't be destructive, but, you know, elephants in the wrong environment are destructive. And it's not because they want yeah. to be. It's just because they have intrinsic behaviors that in you know the wrong environment, they become destructive. So any life form can be constructive or destructive. We just have that intellectual capacity to maybe like think it through a little bit more before we act. And if, I think if we did that, we could be an incredibly beneficial force on, on the planet. Yeah, well said. I mean, we can be really, really powerful, positive force here. We can take this planet 
and turn it into into an Eden. It can be an abundant, healthy, just the most incredible ecosystems you can imagine. We can do that. It's it's up to uh, our consciousness. If, if we're aware of certain things and we're thinking certain thoughts, then we're going to have certain behaviors. And right now, the culture as a whole is is fairly depressed. People are have ne- a lot of negative thoughts, and uh, people are unhappy. They're killing each other for God's sakes. I mean, if we could shift the awareness, shift the consciousness, then then the ecosystems would just follow. Is, is what I think. But, but yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's it's really nice to hear. Well, I mean, if you think about it, like most of the conflicts in the world, you're talking about people killing each other, are due to scarcity. Uh, it, 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 you almost or just madness, madness, and all. But I mean, when you look at like true state level conflict, it's either usually some sort of ideology. But then, even when you dig past that, the real root of the the problem where one side will go to war with another is scarcity. And if you think way back in history. Um, There were battles and people fought each other over salt, right? There were people, men killed men for salt. Men killed men for pepper. And right. I haven't seen in my lifetime, and I don't expect ever to, to see two nations go to war or two tribes go to war over salt or pepper. And the reason is they're abundant. There's no scarcity of salt and pepper. They're incredibly yeah. abundant substances. You can go to any convenience store and get salt and pepper. You can go to McDonald's and eat crap food, and they still have salt and pepper for you sitting there. We don't fight over things that are abundant. So the, the concept of reforesting places and changing the mindset and creating this abundance, no matter what it is you want, it probably helps you get there because if it can reduce the, the propensity for conflict – then there's there's literally nothing it can't do. And people think like guys like Jeff Lawton say we can solve all the world's problems in a garden, that it's fanciful. And on some levels, I guess you can make the case that it is. But in reality, it's not. In reality, it's exactly that, that, that men kill men when there is scarcity. And generally, people, when they have what they need to survive, leave everybody else alone. And it, it, I know it sounds too simple, but it's really the case. Yeah. Well, I think scarcity is a mindset, too, because just like we were saying earlier, like in my area, people think that we're poor. They think this whole county is poor, and I think it's really wealthy. Yeah. And it's just just the way you look at things. And so people have gone to war over a scarcity mindset, I think, not just that there's actually scarcity. Like they weren't going to get the salt if they didn't kill this guy. It, there was other ways to get the salt. And and it, it's just a, it's a mindset. But... uh Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like the world is so insane. I, I can barely wrap my head around it sometimes. It doesn't, like, freak me out or scare me, but I just, it baffles me when I see all this, I see it as madness, like the school shootings and these people are, they're freaking out. And I feel like people are deeply unhappy. And uh, I'm not, I don't think I can, like, save them all. But, man, I wish I could, like, spread a little bit of happiness into the world and just, How people see it, they were surrounded by abundant beauty, miracles, the universe. You know, it's really an amazing place. Well, man, I've I've really enjoyed uh, having you on today, dude. Uh, definitely, when you get close to you know in the published date of that book, years, and you get right up against, it, let's try to have you come back on and talk more about the book, kind of in, in you know 
in in alignment with that launch date, and maybe we can help you get that uh, a good kind of uh, initial hitting the ground with sales. Because uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that'll be interested in your book, and between now and the fall is quite a while. And in reality, people forget things. And uh, otherwise, though, if people want to take your course, maybe learn more about what you're doing, uh, buy some trees from you, what have you. Where can they learn more about you? Uh, they can go on our website. It's just www.twisted-tree.net. So just look up Twisted Tree Farm, and you'll find our website. Uh, I write all kinds of articles. Um, on all kinds of topics, mostly just about plants and how to grow plants um, on different trees. So, uh, yeah, Twisted Tree Farm, just look us up. You'll find the, the course there, too. Okay, man. Well, again, Jack, I... Jack, before I go, I just wanted to say one thing that sure. I really meant to say. So a long time ago, like several years ago, I was listening to this podcast, and you said something. Uh, it was super simple, but it was just this little thing. It was this nugget, and I kept it for all these years. And it helps me have all these great moments with my kids. You said, if you want, you said, guys, if you want to connect, if you want to connect with your kids, get in the kitchen with them, start making some food. <laughs> and it's so simple, but man, I have done it so many times remembering that little, that little sentence you said. And I've had all these times where I was like cutting potatoes on the counter with my kids. Uh, so I just want to say thank you for that. Oh man, thank you. I, I, I'm sure I've said that many times. I I, I can't even remember uh, what particular one you're you're saying, but I think that's important that we uh, we keep stuff like that in our heads because we talked a lot about planting trees today and planting seeds, and and when you put out positive things, that's what you're doing, and you have no idea how many times they'll be re repeated. So that's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. And like I think the other thing like that's cool about that is people always say they can't get their kids to eat good food. Get them to cook with you, man. If they cook it, they'll eat right. it. That's it's, it's it's like insane, but like it's so simple. If they grow it or they cook it or they do both, they'll they'll give it a shot anyway and and eat it, man. So that's cool. Uh, again, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, Jack. So guys, I really enjoyed that. I I enjoyed talking to Akiva. He's he's doing really great work, and uh, he's from Southern uh, New York along the Pennsylvania border, and uh, you can, I can just hear in his voice very familiar tone and attitude. Uh, quite refreshing to hear once in a while. As many of you know, I grew up in Central Pennsylvania, so kind of like talking to a long lost brother there. So a lot of fun. And a lot of really great points. The guy really does make a living off about an acre and a half. And uh, as you heard him say, he can sell more than he can grow. And he does know what he's doing. He's been, and he, It's not like he just started doing this last year. He's been doing this for a long time. The first time I heard him on Permaculture Voices had to be four years ago. And at that point, he had already gone full time with it. So when you get a business four or five years in, it becomes pretty sustainable. And uh, so if you're, if you're looking to add something to what you're doing with your homestead or, or something you can do to, uh, to create financial freedom for yourself, uh, check into his course. Definitely check out his website. Again, it's uh, twisted-tree.com. I've got a link to it in the show notes for you, Twisted Tree Farm, or you can just Google Twisted Tree Farm, or you, you'll find it right away. Anyway, uh, hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope it inspired you to think about what you can do to plant seeds and grow trees, whether they be real trees or metaphorical trees in the hearts of others. Uh, if you like this show and the work that we do and you want to support us, I talked about the fact that we do have the MSB on sale earlier, uh, and we do absolutely have it on sale. You can get the MSB for 35 bucks right now, which is a, a steal, and lock that right in for life. But the other way you can support us is just do your online shopping through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. 
whenever you're going to buy anything online, if you go there first, you'll help support the show and the work that we do. Uh, I have a uh, product of, of the day for you today that uh, recently I kind of came back on my radar because of really needing it. It is the E-Tech City Laser Grip Digital Laser Temperature Gun. And this thing has just so many uses uh, that you can do. Uh, I've used it to determine you know, what the water level is on my water tanks, on my rain catch water tanks, because I can just shoot that little dot on there and rate where the water is and where it is, and I'll see that big temperature change, and I'll know, okay, that 1,100-gallon tank has 900 gallons in it. I know you could get up there and open it up and stick a stick in it or something. It's just so much easier. Uh, we've found micro microclimates within our ecosystems here where plants that need cooler temperatures can grow. Uh, I've used it for cooking surfaces, more on that in a bit. Uh, I use it in my, um, my, my fish tanks. Uh, I'll check my water temperature with it, and I have a lot more faith in it than the thermometers that are on there and know that I've got my fish or my aquaponic systems at the temperature I need to. As I go toward winter with my aquaponic systems, I, I start monitoring my water temperatures with it because I know that my white tilapia are going to die at about 53, 54 degrees. Uh, and I know by like 50, 55 degrees, somewhere in that range, they're going to get really slow and they're not going to be dead yet, and I can just net them out. So I'll be able to plan when I'm going to hit that temperature. Just so many things. I've, I've done you know stuff when we've gone off kind of just in, in hiking and forest, uh, playing around in the forest, just finding different temperature zones and understanding what's going on. Great thing for kids. Fun toy for your cats because it's just basically a laser pointer as well it just happens to tell you what the temperature is and some dogs if they're not the brightest dogs in fact I've been playing I kind of feel bad I got these Buenos Aires Tetras in my fish tank here in front of me and, and I'll, I'll put that bead on their driftwood and they'll chase it all over the tank so they, they like chasing it too and they ain't figured it out yet I guess there ain't much in the brain of a Buenos Aires Tetra but it's a cool thing I, what, what, I just dug it back out because I had kind of forgot where it was for a couple weeks I got a new griddle for my grill, and I'm, I'm breaking this thing in, and it may become an item of the day itself. But you know, it's a it's a griddle, a heavy made professional stainless steel griddle that you put up on top of your grill top, like on a gas grill. And uh, you know, they you know, get your temperature up to around 400 degrees. Well, how do you know? It doesn't have a thermometer built into it. It doesn't have an electrical thermostat. But with that gun, I can see the temperature coming up. I can find hot spots and cool spots. And that way I can think about when I'm cooking, like when I want to sear, I want to be here. When I want to let something rest, I want to be over here. And I'll learn that griddle really, really fast. And I think you would do it anyway over time, but it accelerates that learning curve. They're just a great tool, and, and they're not very expensive. When you think about what you're talking about here is a, a, a thermometer that uses a laser that you cannot see because the little red dot isn't actually the laser. You can actually turn the dot off and still use it. And it bounces off a surface, returns to it, and tells you what the temperature of that surface is. You'd think it'd be something expensive and high-tech and, and complicated. Uh, 26 bucks. 26 bucks, And, I mean, people use this in all different types of things. Soap making. I use it in my mead making. So I know when the, you know, when the mead must temperature is down around 110 or lower, I can pitch my yeast. I, I've gotten pretty good at that. But, you know, it's a good little sanity check. So I'm not killing yeast with 130 degree temperatures or something like that or weakening them uh, with 115 degrees. Uh, it's just an awesome tool for 25 bucks. You can get it at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down till you see it. 
Um, runs on a little 9-volt battery. The battery is included. They send it with the tool for you. It's so easy to use. Even I can do it. It measures in Fahrenheit and centigrade both, uh, depending on which one you prefer. Most of us around here prefer Fahrenheit anyway. Uh, but remember, whether it's the E-Tech City Laser Grip Digital Infrared Thermometer, any of the other items I recommend, or anything that you buy online after going through tspaz.com, you help the survival podcast and the work that we do. So it's a pretty painless way to hurt us, help us out, to hurt us, to help us out. And by the way, man, if, uh, if you see it on T-SPAS, I own it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. Um, I, I get people that ask me to review items for them all the time uh, since I've become a pretty uh, heavy affiliate uh, for, for Amazon. And uh, so I'll have people reach out to me, and a lot of times I'm like, I don't even want one for free. I just I look at it and go, it's not, you know, and I, I find stuff that I could review. If I haven't touched it, if I haven't used it, if I can't verify that it is what I say it is, I don't recommend it to y'all. Uh, my entire business has been built for 10 years now on integrity. Uh, just remember that when you're shopping at T-Spaz or when you're thinking about who to support. All right, with that, let's go into our song of the day today. Our song of the day today, as we continue Billy Joel week, is probably the best-known song of the songs that we'll be covering this week. This was a huge hit for him, Honesty. Uh, and it is it's an amazing soaring operatic song. Uh, it's it's all of Billy Joel's musical genius put together. And, and the concept of this song is that it's it's easier to find someone that'll love you than someone that'll tell you the truth. And, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And of course, this is coming at it from the emotional, romantic. Uh, world, the individual one-on-one -on -one world. And it, it speaks for itself in that. But I think there's a reason that, that this is true at that level, and it's a much larger macro level. You tell me, uh, based on your observations with people in general, on anything from politics to economics to, uh, to just things that, that they want to be true, no matter what they may be, Uh, different biases, confirmation and perception biases and normalcy biases. What do people prefer? A comfortable lie or an uncomfortable truth? And I think one of the reasons we struggle so much with honesty in our world is because in many situations, honesty is not rewarded, it's punished. It's punished in school. You know, it, it's often punished in friendships. You tell your friend that they've got a problem and they don't want to hear about it, it can cost you a friendship. However, I have found in my life that it is generally the best policy. Now, I think there is a such thing as a white lie. I think there are times when you leave well enough alone with something so that you can preserve a relationship. I'm, I'm not saying, that, you know, always telling the truth, whether somebody wants to hear it or not, is the best thing. But to generally live in a position where you're honest, especially when asked, It is a better course. It may hurt sometimes. It may complicate things sometimes. But especially when somebody comes to you and asks you for your honest opinion, I found that it's generally best to give that. And that if you're going to be doing you know anything in the world where you're trying to make a difference, you need to be honest. In it. And it's uh, it's not always the easiest thing to do. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Akiva. Uh, I hope you go out there and plant some trees. And uh, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. If you search for tenderness, it isn't hard to find. 
Some pretty face to tell. 